I'm going to come to the reading in just a moment. I want to start off by telling you a true story. In 1994, Russell Herman, 67-year-old carpenter who lived in Illinois, died at the age of 67. He left in his last will and testament 2.4 billion to a nearby town, 2.4 billion to the city of East Lewis, 1.5 billion for projects in southern Illinois, and in a final act of unprecedented generosity, he left 6 trillion to the Federal Reserve to pay off the national debt. There was only one problem. At the time of his death, the only thing Russell Herman actually owned was a 1983 old tornado car. All Russell Herman really left behind was a good reminder, you can't give away what you don't possess. The bottom line is that he did not have the resources to make good on his intentions. I'm grateful to Brian Bill who uh, made that story available. It's, it's a true story. I want to tell you this morning that God has all the means to make good on all his promises. So let's turn together to the word of God. Peter begins his second letter to Peter, chapter 1, by writing about these promises. To Peter 1, verse 1 to 4. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I want to talk about God's promises this morning. Peter calls God's promises precious. The dictionary defines precious as an adjective that can describe something or someone that has great value, either because of being rare, expensive, important, or spiritually or morally admirable. Peter liked the word precious. In 1 Peter, he wrote about how suffering is like a fire that refines our faith and makes it more precious than gold. He wrote in chapter 1, verse 19 of 1 Peter, um, that the blood of Jesus is the precious blood of Christ. In chapter 2, 4 of that epistle, he wrote that Jesus is the living stone 
rejected by man, but chosen and precious. One commentary makes the point, the word precious wasn't enough to describe God's promises. So he adds the word great. The Greek word for great is mega. God's promises are mega precious. But even that, it says, wasn't enough for Peter. Peter includes an ending to the Greek word mega, which intensifies it, megista. These are, he says, very great and precious promises. I've got at home a copy of Herbert Lockyer's book entitled All the Promises of the Bible. Dr. Lockyer went through the Bible and found himself 7,457 promises God has given to man. That would mean that if you read one promise every day, it would take you 20 years to read them all. Isn't that wonderful? But let's take a little closer look at what Peter says. First of all, he says, his promises are given to us. He has given them to us. Now, I want to tell you, I'm beginning to think that some people are beginning to see me as a doddery old man who they can put one over on. The reason I say that is that when I go into a shop to buy something using cash, and I'm a bit of a dinosaur, I like using cash. So I do it most of the time. But whenever I use cash to buy something, I get in my change old, obsolete pound coins. Now, I never seem to notice, and I get quite a pocket full of change, and I was in um, B&M store uh, recently, and I went to pay for something and gave her three of these old pound coins. And the lady at the till looked at me with pity and said, uh, Sir, I'm sorry to tell you, but you can't use these anymore. They're obsolete. I had an unworthy thought the other day, which I had to repent of very quickly. I thought, well, I could always put them in the offering. <laughs> Trouble is now... If anyone puts old coins in the offering, I'm going to get the blame for it. <laughs> but I want to tell you in all seriousness this morning, God's promises are not obsolete. There are some people I've heard say that uh, a lot of God's promises were just there to get the church launched, to get the church started, and then they're not needed anymore. I think we need them more than ever. There's no evidence in the Word of God to say that God's promises were just for a short time. They don't go out of date. They're not obsolete. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Joshua 23:14 to 15. Now I'm not now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. 
every promise has been fulfilled, not one has failed. We have in modern times become rather skeptical of people's promises. We see broken promises everywhere. Politicians coming up to an election promise you the earth. And then after the election find reasons why they can't give it to you. Almost every day some of us get a phone call or an email pretending to be from a bank or some other organization uh, promising this or that and uh, then you find out it's a scam. Uh, the promises are worthless. I had a phone call this week from somebody who gave me, launched into a great spiel about uh, we're from your energy company and discovered that your loft insulation is the wrong type and uh, we promise we can do it on a special offer. I let him go on for a while and I said, well, I'm sorry to tell you, I live in a flat and haven't got a loft. And he just put the phone down. <laughs> my wife got a text recently pretending to be from one of my daughters saying she'd lost a phone, borrowed a friend's, could my wife help her in an emergency. It was a scam. We thankfully didn't fall for that scam. We become so cynical about promises today that we even have a saying, promises are made to be broken. No, no they are not. They're made to be kept. I quoted a couple of minutes ago from 2 Corinthians one twenty: for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. The context here is that some Christians were saying of the Apostle Paul that, you see, he'd made an arrangement to visit Corinth and then uh, things didn't work out and he couldn't make it when he said he'd go. So some were saying that Paul and his message were unreliable. So he writes to them to say he wasn't a promise breaker and God certainly isn't a promise breaker. And that's where that text comes from. He says all the promises of God are yes in Christ and amen in Christ to the glory of God through us. The yes in the, is Greek, it means certain and true. Amen is of Hebrew origin it means variously, so be it, or it's already done and can even mean fully accomplished. In Christ, these very great and precious promises are given to us. But let's ask ourselves this morning, how do we receive them? How do we activate these wonderful promises from God? When the angel appeared to Gideon, he was threshing wheat in a wine press for fear of the Midianites. And Gideon responded to the angel's message by saying, Pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? I was talking to a mother um, a couple of weeks ago, whose son has a number of quite serious health issues, and we've been praying for him. She's a Christian mum, and uh, I s said, well, look, we haven't given up on God, and we're going to keep praying. 
And she said to me, she said, well, look, it seems that God doesn't seem to heal these days. We pray, but nothing happens. Well, I want to tell you miracles do happen today. But I understand where she was coming from. How do we understand it when we have the promises of God and yet we pray and nothing happens or seems to happen? Please note I said seems to answer, go on answer, seems not to happen. I want to talk for a minute about God's plan and then talk about how promises, some promises, not all, some promises are conditional. Let's think about God's plan first of all. Someone has said, God's, when we pray, God sometimes says yes, sometimes no, and sometimes wait. In Romans 15.4, Paul says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. We have in the Bible many examples of God saying no, God saying yes, and God saying wait. Let's deal with the wait one first, because that's the one most of us don't like. In Genesis 15.4, God promised Abraham, a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Abraham was 75 years old when God made that promise. But he had to wait 15 years for it to happen. Then, in the Old Testament, in many places, God promised through the prophets that the Messiah would come, and people longed for that to happen. But between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, that introduces the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, there's a gap of 400 plus years. But then in Galatians 4.4, the Apostle Paul says, when the time had fully come, I like the way the NIV renders it, but when the set time had fully come, God sent forth his son. God works to a plan. His plan's always going to be better than your plan or my plan. Be sure of that. But we become impatient. And we think, well, God's forgotten about the promise. He's forgotten about my prayer. It's not going to happen. Abraham and Sarah did that. They became impatient. And his Ishmael was the result. And we know what trouble that caused. The psalmist got frustrated waiting for God to help him. In Psalm 13:1, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Four times there he says, how long? Someone has said, and I like this, a promise is the assurance that God gives to his people so they can walk by faith while they wait for him to work. Then there's no. Sometimes God says no. Now when I was a child, I hated the word no. And I'm not much fonder of it today either, to be honest. But as a father of four daughters, there were many times I had to say no. 
But I do know this, every time I said no, that no came out of my love for them. One thing I am sure of, that God loves me. And if he has to say no to a prayer or a promise I'm trying to claim, it's because it's for my best. The Bible says all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. I think that's Romans 8, 26. If there is a conflict with... Now, let me ask this, make this a question. Is there a conflict then between God saying no and Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.20, the yes and amen of the promises? My answer to that is this, I don't think so. The fulfillment of all God's promises resides in his sovereign will. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. God's will is sovereign. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says that he asked God three times to take away what he calls his thorn in the flesh. On the third time, God spoke to him and said, my strength is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. You see, Paul's thorn in the flesh was keeping him dependent on the strength of Jesus. And so God says, no, I'm not going to take that away because you might become dependent on your own strength and talents and gifts and abilities. So I'm going to keep that there. So God said no for a very good reason. And Paul, when he recognized that, said, I'd rather have the thorn in the flesh that I might rest in the power of Christ. And then there are times God says yes, and I love the times God says yes, but not much more I can say about that. So let's move on to some promises are conditional. God's love is unconditional. Be quite clear on that. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't do anything to earn or deserve God's love. It was unconditionally given. He sent Christ to die when we were his enemies. But some of God's promises are conditional. In John 15:7, Jesus promised, we can ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Great. I'll have a Ferrari and a million pounds, please. But if you read the whole verse, it says, if, it begins with if. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. And then, of course, I might come back to that, but then, of course, God only gives what's good 
for us. So Matthew 5, 9 to 11 says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God gives good gifts. And as the love of money is the root of all evil, maybe a million pounds wouldn't be the best thing for me. God will only give me good gifts. Then in Romans 10.9 it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is conditional on faith in Jesus Christ. Good works, being a nice person, won't get you anywhere. You've got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So there are reasons why sometimes God does not give us everything we ask for, even if there's a promise there saying he will. But having said that, I want to say this. We must not use those situations as a cop-out for our failure to take hold of his promises in faith. I want to talk for a few moments, and I'm not going to be much longer, of the importance of faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the evidence of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. Excuse me. One writer said, faith is the confident persuasion that God will do what he says he will do and are acting on that conviction. Charles Spurgeon once said, do not treat God's promises as if they were curiosities for a museum, but believe them and use them. Hebrews 14 says of Israel, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Even Jesus couldn't do many miracles in his hometown, it says, because of their lack of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I cannot overemphasize the importance of faith. I think it might have been last week that Pastor Dave preached on Romans 4, if not it was the week before. Um, there's a verse in there, verse 20, about Abraham's faith. It says this, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Dear my grandson Luke can do a Rubik's Cube from being all mixed up in 26 seconds. Pretty good, isn't it? 
I tried for two days to do the Rubik's Cube and then nearly threw it out of the window in frustration. I've never managed to do the Rubik's Cube. Then I watch him do it in 26 seconds. I think there's something wrong up here. God is able to do amazing things. He can fulfill all his promises. And Abraham, he believed the promise of God. Though by the time God fulfilled it, he was, 90, he was nearly 100 years old, wasn't he? And his wife was 90 years old, and yet he did not waver in his faith. We need to have faith in the promises of God. Can I just say this, though? When thinking of God as the rewarder, Hebrews 11:6 again, we must guard against the misconception that if I have faith, I can make God do what I want God to do for me. I like the way that Malvin Moma uh, comments on this. He says, biblical faith is not the capability to manipulate God. Biblical faith is pleasing God. So many times you hear it said that it that if I just have faith, I can name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. However, if it is not God's will, your faith in faith is not going to change his mind, regardless of how much faith in faith you have. Understand biblical faith. It's not having God stand behind some big red button and you say, okay, press it now. I think it's important just to say that. We've got to respect that God is God. He's Lord of our lives. But we must have faith to receive his promises. Romans 12.3 says, According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And of course, that means mankind, women as well. God has given us all faith. The disciples were always praying, Lord, increase our faith. Once the Holy Spirit had come in Acts 2, I can't remember one instance where I hear them asking for more faith anymore. They started using the faith they had. And Jesus had already told them, look, it's not a case of how much faith. If you had a faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could move mountains. Of course, that's figurative. One commentary says, what is the standard unit of measurement of faith? And he answered, enough. God has given us all enough faith to do miracles, to act on his promises, to do, see wonders happen, to win the loss. In the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 3.16, we hear Peter saying when he healed the man at the gate beautiful, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know, was made strong. Wade, who's uh, talking about this faith to believe, talks about Martha um, when her brother Lazarus died. And uh, he makes three points, which uh, I, I have attributed to him, so I feel at liberty to share. Um, he says this. He says, first of all, Martha, when Jesus arrived, had limited faith. Remember, her brother died four days before and Jesus wasn't there. When Jesus arrived, he, she had limited faith. John eleven twenty one. 21. 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He says this kind of faith relies on some super saint to make it happen. And if nothing happens, it's their fault or God's fault. Not taking daring to believe that God can use us to do something. Then she moved on from there to what we might call rational faith. Verse 24 of John 11. I know that he will rise in the resurrection. Martha thinks it's too late now, so let me rationalize it. Well, there'll be a resurrection. He'll come, he'll, God will do it then, that way, but he can't do it now. No opportunity for a miracle now. Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Finally, she moves to active faith. They're at the tomb in verse 39. And Martha objects when Jesus says, roll away the stone. She said, Lord, he's been dead four days. By this time he'll be decaying. He'll smell bad. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Note the if hinges on Martha. No if with Jesus. If, he said, you believe. Martha then steps out in faith and says to those around, roll away the stone. Then the miracle happens. When we pastored in, uh, and this is my concluding bit, all right, when we pastored in the Rhonda Valley in the 70s, our church secretary, he Badly sprained his ankle, swollen, painful, couldn't walk on it. He sat there with his foot up in the air. And his daughter visited with her two young sons. Uh, I think they were 10 and 14. The youngest, Matthew, had been learning in Sunday school how Jesus healed the sick. And uh, he turned to his granddad and said, Granddad, I'm going to pray that Jesus heals your foot. So Ivor said, Okay, Matthew, go ahead. He laid his little hand on Ivor's ankle and prayed, Lord Jesus, heal my granddad. And Ivor's ankle was instantly healed that very moment. Kids Ministry International cite on their website many instances of children being used of God in miracles of healing. Is it because children simply trust what the Bible says and are ready to act upon it? Whereas we complicate it, we have so many doubts, so many ifs. Do you know, I sometimes when I'm praying, I sometimes have thoughts invade that aren't helpful. I'm praying for a miracle or something. And suddenly a thought will come in from this side and then from that side. Well, Bill down the road, he had the same problem and it didn't happen for him. Or Mary over here, um, she was prayed for and she never got well. Do you have that sort of problem sometimes? I've decided a long time ago that when I pray for miracles, I'm going to be like a racehorse with blinkers on, you know? 
And I am not going to allow the devil to put those thoughts of doubts in my mind. I'll shut them out and I'm going to just look vertically, vertically up to God and just dare to believe that never mind about Mary or Bill down the road or anyone else, it's between me and God right now. And God is the God of miracles. The promises of ours are ours to receive. They're given to us, Peter says, and they're very great and precious. But we've got to start using our faith to see their power released. One other thought I leave with you. It says of Stephen and Barnabas in the New Testament that they were full of the Holy Spirit and faith. It links their great faith with their fullness of the Holy Spirit. I sense that what we need more than ever today is to be men and women, a church full of the Holy Spirit. Because God wants to do miracles today. God wants to fulfill his promises. He wants us, he's given them to us. He wants us to start using our faith in them and see people saved and healed and delivered and wonderful things happen. But we need to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to exercise the faith we have. Let's pray. Father God, we just bow in your holy presence. Lord, we just come to you sometimes dry and empty and just say, Lord, fill us anew. Fill us anew. Come Holy Spirit and fill us anew. And Lord, raise our faith and that you've given us. And thank you for your glorious and wonderful promises. Lord, forgive us for our doubts and our fears and Help us, Lord, to start believing them and daring to step out on them. And Father, will you just cause us to seek you and find you in a new way until we are full, full to the brim of your Holy Spirit and moving in you. Lord, will you do that? We humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.